Welcome to season one of Reclaiming Jesus Now. 10 conversations with Jim Wallace, exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis. We're your host. I'm William Matthews. And I'm Allison Trowbridge. Today, we're talking about Chapter 8, The Peacemaker Question. Jim, we're talking about being peacemakers. Is there a difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? Good question. Um, The first thing that's different is Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say, blessed are the peace lovers. Mm. So that's the first distinction. We all love peace. And then we all want to blame the lack of peace on other people. Mm. Right? Peacemakers means those who are... Um, there's a whole, I find, a whole new generation of young people who are drawn to uh, the art and science of conflict resolution. I hear that all the time. And in many, I've done a lot of uh, gang peace work, <laughs> peace work with um, young gangs, gang members in cities. We had a big uh, gang peace summit in 1994. And between... 120 gang leaders from 25 cities. And you could see how conflict resolution becomes really a science and an art or uh, conflict between families or in communities. So it's peacemaking, solving conflicts that Jesus is calling those who do that the children of God. Peacekeeping, it's interesting you raise that. Peacekeeping, just as I hear that, on the one hand, uh, keep the peace, uh, sounds good, you know, you want to keep the peace, but it also could be um, keeping peace under an oppressive status quo. Mm, like, mm. A, like a false peace. Yeah, mm. let's keep quiet and peaceful and accept things yeah. as they are. Yeah. And I don't see Jesus saying... Blessed are the peacekeepers um, who would sort of want to uh, maintain the injustice of the status quo, or let's just love peace, and if we're not getting peace, something is wrong with somebody else. Most of our human conflict is inevitable because we're human in relationships, in nations, uh, between groups in the world. It, it's inevitable. Human conflict is inevitable. How we resolve those conflicts is the issue. How we do it. And when you think about it, most of our conflicts, most of our conflicts are resolved without killing people. Yeah. Most of our conflicts are resolved without killing each other, right? So how do we increase the number of conflicts mm. that are resolved nonviolently? Mm. That's the issue. Peace loving isn't enough. Mm. Peacekeeping isn't enough. Peacemaking is what Jesus calls us to, which means those who resolve human conflicts get this very special title that he uses, affirmation. Those are my, my children, the children of God. Those are those who are resolving the conflicts that we as 
human beings have. I, they're really important. They're special to me and my children. Hmm. Made in the image. Like it's, it's almost the image question again, right? To say that peacekeepers, excuse me, peacemakers are children, are inherently children of God. Exactly. Exactly. You include a beautiful, beautiful quote from Dorothy Day in this chapter. She was the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement and just a total hero. I was going to say badass. She's also a badass. Yeah, she was. But she said, you just need to look at what the gospel asks and what war does. The gospel asks that we feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the homeless, visit the prisoner, and perform works of mercy. War does all the opposite. It makes my neighbor hungry, thirsty, homeless, a prisoner, and sick. The gospel asks us to take up our cross. War asks us to lay the cross of suffering on others. And I see this as in such stark contrast to um, an American church that I think has so often rushed to war as the answer and the solution. And and Jim, I'd love for you to share with us some of your thoughts on both the question of, of war and the just war theory that so many of us are familiar with. And I think we've used to justify uh, violence in so many conflicts. You know, to talk about peacemaking and nonviolence is to often be accused of being naive, mm. right? Yeah. I would say to think that war is the answer to our human conflicts is what is most naive. Because war, military conflict, as Dorothy says, doesn't normally resolve conflicts, mm. exacerbates them, mm. often makes them worse. Um, just war, uh, let's say just war and pacifism, uh, using that phrase. I remember I was at Fuller Seminary one time, and it was a debate on this. And there was a just war pulpit and a pacifist pulpit. And I was there in the pacifist pulpit. And here's the whole seminary crowd. And we're debating the Bible and theology and politics. In the middle of that, I just said, wait a minute. <laughs> Something is really wrong here. Here we are way above the crowd. Here we are way above the crowd in the heavens on these big high pulpits talking theoretically about war and peace. Why don't we get down out of our pulpits, onto the ground, and try and together resolve the conflicts that we're talking about? Rather than the word pacifism I've never loved, it's not in the Bible at all, and it sounds to me way too passive. Mm. What I'm against, I'm against this and I'm going to withdraw no, we need people to resolve the conflicts that are real and resolve them in a way that works. And so... Well, well de-escalation mm, is not passive in nature. That's an action. That's right. It's an action. That's right. So it makes sense that you would feel that way because it's not about being passive. <clears throat> it's about intently de-escalating, intently choosing peacemaking. In the book, um, uh, it's mentioned just briefly... With the war in Iraq, um, a number of us, American Christian leaders, uh, proposed a six-point plan as an alternative to the war in Iraq. 
It had clear six points of how to resolve two questions. The possibility of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which was the it wasn't true, but that was, that a, was a threat. That was yeah. the, they said that was the threat. And even to remove this tyrant, Saddam Hussein, from power. We had six points of how that could be done without bombing Baghdad and taking all these lives on all sides. Mm. And it was a concrete alternative. It wasn't just we're against the war because wars hurt people. And that, it was called the American Church Plan. Mm. It was on the desk during the cabinet debate in the UK. Prime Minister Blair invited us to number 10 Downing Street Wow! to have an hour to talk with him about whether we need to go to war with Iraq. And he didn't have answers to our alternatives, but he was so far down the road in supporting George W. Bush at that point, he didn't really have an alternative. But I was in conversation with, with cabinet secretaries over there, even people in Iraq, uh, the Jordanian leaders, uh, and even in Colin Powell's council, the Secretary of State's council, we were invited there to present an alternative to war with Iraq that would solve. Here's the thing. You can't just be against a war. You've got to say, what are the real issues here, real threats, real fears, not things that are, that are just made up? But are there real issues here, like the potential of uh, weapons of mass destruction or this tyrant? Nonviolence means more than just being against war. It means taking the problems that war purports to solve and solving them in a different way, in a better way. Nonviolence has to take up the questions that often lead to war, but show how they can be resolved without going to war. That's always where you should at least start. That takes a very conscious effort to look at a situation, not just from the top down, but from the ground up. So when I think of peacemaking, I think of, like if me and Allison are in conflict, it would actually be important to know what is driving the conflict, what is driving the source of Allison's uh, contention and what's driving the source of mine and resolving it in such a way where we wouldn't get into a physical brawl <laughs> about it, right? Because you know I'd win. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm assuming this is what Allison needs, right. then I'm, I've actually, I'm perpetuating the problem, not helping to heal it and, and solve it. And it's funny because I think just that simple shift is what makes us peacemakers versus warmongers is instead of going this is what we think iraq needs this mm. is what we think syria needs actually let's talk to syrians about what they need how can we support that how can we help these nations and these communities deal with problems that they're facing rather than coming down often with a top-down perspective a very militaristic perspective a well let's just settle it by bombing it and i think we've often taken that top-down like empire Caesar approach instead of a ground up. Um, how do we build relationship? How to do the long painstaking work of walking with folks through 
serious seasons of life. And sometimes that takes years. Diplomacy takes years. It's not peacekeeping takes years. It's not an overnight always thing, but it's painstaking. It is um, inch by inch, little by little trust be building trust and equity and bridges is easier than simply destroying everything. And, and it feels like our culture just doesn't have a value anymore for diplomacy. I feel like this administration doesn't have a value for dis- diplomacy and peacemaking. We don't have a value for the long generational painstaking work of reconciling groups of people, reconciling nations. Um, and we find it much more easier just to uh, deal with things using strength and brute force and, and weapons. And War is impatience. Mm, I love that. Stanley Harawas. Yeah, I quote Stanley there because it's a lack of um, patience and a lack of humility. You just talked about both, really. Yeah. Listening to others who are in the situation and being patient with time. And you can often do that. The alternative to pacifism, just saying no, and the just war, always finding a way to justify. The just war thing is usually used to justify, mm. not to stop. To justify a war that's already going on mm. is a phrase I love and I talk in the book extensively about called just peacemaking. Just peacemaking. And my dear friend now who's passed, Glenn Stassen, who is a professor at Fuller Seminary, has written extensively about this, what just peacemaking really is. And it's very practical, William. Like you say, here here's, here's are the 10 practices of just peacemaking that Glenn Stassen and many others talk about. Support nonviolent direct action. Take independent initiatives to reduce threats. Use cooperative conflict resolution. Acknowledge responsibility for conflict and injustice. Seek repentance and forgiveness. Advance democracy, human rights, and religious liberty. Foster just and sustainable economic development, which takes time. Time. And work with emerging cooperative forces in the international system. Um, Reduce offensive weapons and weapons trade and encourage grassroots on the ground, peacemaking organizations and voluntary associations. Rose Berger, who works for Sojourners, has just been back and forth to the Vatican. And there's a group globally called Pax Christi, mostly lay Catholics and some Mm. priests, who've been invited by Pope Francis to begin to lay out not a new debate on just war and pacifism, but a lifestyle of nonviolent action being taken already by people mostly in the global south who are in the middle of conflicts every day, all day, that's their lives, and they're the ones who are resolving these conflicts. So active nonviolence is a more practical alternative than the naivete of thinking war is always the answer. Mm. It says here that investing early to prevent conflicts into escalating is 60 times more cost-effective than intervening after violence erupts. So how do we actively invest to prevent conflict? Can I, can I also add, to that works in so many other areas of life. That works in crime prevention. Yeah. Paying for crime prevention is 
cost effective than to imprison people later on. Same goes for education. Investing in early education uh, has better long term benefits uh, for us in the long run. I mean, it works on every incarceration incarceration levels. Like everything has shown us that investing in education, investing in uh, economic resources on the front end, even when it comes to healthcare and stuff like preventative policies to help people not incur certain life-changing diseases, like that, even with cigarette prevention, right, with kids getting addicted to cigarettes at a young age, like that curbs cancer later on. Like, so we know on every level, this type of preemptive peacemaking is not only good, righteous, just, but is as well cost effective (laughs) (laughs) and builds a just, sustainable world. It saves lives and money. Yeah. Yeah. Both. Yeah. It saves money, it's cost effective, and it saves lives. In all of those examples you just named, it saves money and saves lives. So it's very practical. This is not just some utopian right. notion. Which we I think had, is important to underscore. It really is. We had concrete approaches to how to solve the problems that going to war with Iraq purported to solve, and it was an incredible mistake. It was. Yeah. It's left us so unstable. It's yeah. cost trillions of dollars and so thousands many lives. And thousands of lives. Uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. And it's made the world more unstable yes. than ever before. Yeah. And so this was not the right approach. It led to things like ISIS and all kinds of it's other... led to all of this. Yeah. Exactly. I, I want to talk for a minute around this idea of of the peacemaking imagination. How do we cultivate this imagination of a world uh, that doesn't devolve into war and violence? And I think we've become so accustomed to war being a solution for conflict uh, that we can hardly imagine a different solution. And, And yet 200 years ago, we couldn't imagine a world without slavery. And so how do we begin to imagine forward human society without the constant wars and genocides that surround us? Well, I have a section in this chapter called Waging Peace, which is based on the notion that we invest so much more money, time, cost, weapons, and and risk in waging war than we do in waging peace. The cost of waging war is so high, but often those of us who are peacemakers are not willing to invest and pay the cost for peace. Soldiers pay more, more cost, more risk, more sacrifice for war, even if that war isn't the answer. They're paying for it Mm. with their lives and their losses and their loved ones. Their sanity. And the mm-hmm. consequence of what happens when they come home, right? What it's done to them and to their families. But we pay more for war. We risk more than we risk for peace. It's going to take a, a morally equivalent commitment to waging peace than it does to waging war. Giving our lives for that. Risking for that making sacrifices for that, because it isn't easy. It's hard. So there's got to be some moral equivalence here in the cost of war-making and the cost of peacemaking. And this is why I think Jesus says, 
these are my children. These are my kids. They're the mm. ones who are, who are, who are, who are really risking the solve conflicts because it isn't just going to war. It's how we talk together. What our civil discourse is now like in this country. We were just talking in our break here about conversations with friends and family, how people on Capitol Hill talk or don't talk to each other or about each other. Civility has just disappeared on Capitol Hill. There's not even a decent talking to and about and for each other anymore. Cornell West says it well, that we are in, he calls, a spiritual blackout, which is the relative eclipse of decency. Let me say again. Cornell West says this, we are in a spiritual blackout, which is the relative eclipse of decency, honesty, and integrity. So this isn't just about being nice. This is about having a kind of discourse together that can lead to conflict resolution instead of exacerbating and escalating our conflicts just in the way we talk to and about each other and our media systems, our media channels and networks and radio shows talking the way they do about the opponents and the others. Yeah, it's and all those sport. who disagree, it's just more and more warlike. Yeah, we, we talk about politics or public policy like sport um, and we treat politics like sport. Um, even the way that the media covers it and like CNN breaking news, right? Like it's, it's matchups and lineups and this person jabbed at that person and they, they clap back and, you know, everything is viewed through that lens. But I, one of the things that I love about the God and honestly, and, and this, the narrative of scripture is I think in Genesis one, we see this picture one through three of God as the cosmic gardener who is tending his beautiful garden and taking slow and painstaking attempts to bring forth fruition out of the cosmos, right? I think the slow process of evolution all the way into the creation of this planet is God preferring slow and incremental change and the painstaking work of tending his garden. And I just see that in the character and nature of God. And so it makes sense to me that God would be nonviolent, that God is waging peace <laughs> and that peace, even though conflict exists in the cosmos, that it is the work of peace and the work of moving us uh, in in that way that is actually uh, how change comes about. Like, I feel like God in Christ has shown us that that is the way of God. As as we were talking about this idea of waging peace, I gosh, it made me think of kind of one of the elephants in the room on this issue is that approval ratings usually skyrocket for wartime presidents. How do we shift that default into, into peacemaking prevention instead of this rush for, for war and, and, and a rush to battle? And, and it even, you know, it, it gives me some level of, of trepidation in the current administration around how easily we could go to war uh, in this present moment. Do you think about that at all, Jim? The words you both just used, you said rush, Ellie, and you said time and the time it takes. It reminded me of a line in, in this chapter, the way of Jesus takes a longer time and deeper approach 
than the quick solutions that attack, violence, and war promise. It's rushing. It is indeed rushing. And the time that it takes to find answers. So, yes, war is used politically. There is a deep danger right now of a war with Iran, which would be even more disastrous than the war with Iraq was. And so just two weeks ago, a number of us as faith leaders spoke up against this and said, here is how we can solve a number of these issues and even conflicts with Iran without going to war, which would be just horrendous in cost of lives and cost of money. So faith leaders spoke up, spoke quickly against this strategy. One of you mentioned the word warmonger. Look it up in the dictionary. A warmonger is someone who has a preference for war as a solution to conflicts. You prefer war as the way to resolve things. We have people in this this we have people in this administration who are technically, by definition, warmongers. They have always preferred war as a solution than any other solution. And war can be used politically to distract from domestic issues, turn our attention to something else, try to unite the country for war, which is always easier to do. Pull people together and with soldiers on the battlefield, defend the war. I I think that's why it was so egregious for us to watch this administration pull out of the Iran deal. And then to use that and the the effects of that as some sort of reason for why we should possibly go to war with Iran. That was, it's like we were in a painstaking, slow peace process that made compromises. No one got exactly what they wanted, but the work of peace was being accomplished. And to see us intentionally pull out of that, unravel from that, and then somehow now decide we need to punish Iran <laughs> for, uh, uh, building a uh, nuclear uranium like right and i'm going we aren't isn't this an example of us creating a problem and then saying we're coming in to to step in to fix it which to me feels like the the attributes of what warmonger warmongers do is create the problem and then oh, i alone can save it i alone can fix it instead of complying with the painstakingly slow process to create peace at a deeper level than policy what we learned from what you just said is uh, painfully slow, deep process toward peace. The Iran deal wasn't perfect, and I was one of the faith leaders who came out in support of it because it would have prevented for a longer time Iran not having nuclear weapons. Uh, now, that was being effective. All of the data shows that Iran has been abiding by all that. And yet we pulled out of it. This administration, I won't say we, this administration pulled out of it and created the current conflict with Iran. And so instead of the painstakingly slow and gradual and incremental way to peace, which is always the way it is in our relationships, in our uh, civil discourse, in our talking in our communities about how to solve problems, 
how to bring people together, how to reduce crime, how to have community policing instead of militarized policing, how to have a more fair judicial system, criminal justice system, how to um, educate young kids, um, you know, pre-K to give them a chance to do well in school. All of these things take time. When we rush to easy solutions, blaming other people for the problem, that's what leads to war. And back to the Thomas Merton quote, which you loved, um, uh, the root of war is fear. The root of war is fear. So peacemaking, it's a lifestyle. Uh, Daniel Berrigan, I was saying this before, but Daniel says it even better. We cry peace and cry peace. And there is no peace. There is no peace because there are no peacemakers. There are no makers of peace because the making of peace is at least as costly as the making of war, at least as exigent, at least as disruptive, at least as liable to bring disgrace and prison and death in its wake. Hmm. The cost of peacemaking, that's what Jesus is calling us to because our human conflicts are inevitable because we're human, because we're human. How do we resolve them? That's what we're called to be as peacemakers. I, want, I also want to take a moment to discuss uh, the nuclear arms race and how we as people of faith ought to to see and engage that. And you share a, a very beautiful story about Billy Graham's first visit to Auschwitz in the late 70s. Um, and he was quoted... He, he had been, been for the U.S. having nuclear weapons. And after visiting Auschwitz, he was quoted saying, The present insanity of the global arms race, if continued, will lead inevitably to a conflagration so great that Auschwitz will seem like a minor rehearsal. And you had some engagement with Graham after this. Can you tell us a little bit about his transformation on this subject? Billy Graham was always learning. Mm. and listening, and growing. And so we had developed a relationship over the years, and I saw this quote, or a subscriber to Sojourners, actually, uh, in Austria sent me this quote, wow. and said, Billy Graham just said this, and I don't know what it means. Uh, does it mean a change of heart? I don't know, but it got no coverage in the U.S. at all, this quote. He said after vi visiting Auschwitz, so I wrote him, and I said, Billy, did you say this? And does this suggest a change of heart for you in relation to nuclear weapons and the nuclear arms race? And he wrote back and said, yes, it does. Mm. My heart has been changed. Mm. And so I said, would you like to talk about that? Shall we do an interview? He says, it'd be very appropriate for you to interview me in Sojourners. And we did, Billy Graham on the cover, A Change of Heart. Wow. Most of his aides were against him doing that for a lot of reasons, but he did. And it was a, a powerful thing he said. He said, is a nuclear holocaust inevitable if the arms race is not stopped? Frankly, the answer is almost certainly yes. Now, I know that some people feel human beings are 
so terrified of nuclear war that no one would dare start one. I wish I could accept that, but rather, but neither history nor the Bible gives much reason for optimism. What guarantee is there that the world will never produce another maniacal dictator like Hitler or Amin? As a Christian, I take sin seriously. And the Christian should be the first to know that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. As Jeremiah says, we can be capable of unspeakable horror no matter how educated or technological, no matter, we can be capable of unspeakable horror, no matter how educated or technically sophisticated we are. Auschwitz is a compelling witness to that. Billy Graham came out against nuclear weapons. You know why in part? He told me later, he said, you know, I'm preaching now in Eastern Europe. I'm doing revivals there. I'm preaching to congregations full of people. Any good preacher falls in love with the people to whom they're preaching. And Billy Graham realized the people whom he was preaching to, calling to Christ, were targets of our country's nuclear weapons. And he said, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And Billy Graham had the courage to come out against all of his aides and supporters and most of the political allies he had in various presidential administrations, and he came out against nuclear weapons. As a matter of faith, I used to have a poster at my office that said this, it's a sin to build a nuclear weapon. These are weapons of mass destruction, and they are a sin to build, to have, and to use. And Billy Graham, the world's leading evangelist, came to see that and say that. Hmm. Well, if the devil's purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy, then those weapons of mass destruction are, are the very Satan itself. Peacemakers are not utopians. They are the best hope for reducing violence, avoiding the greatest dangers, halting the biggest threats, and moving things, even incrementally, in a better direction. They keep open the necessary and vital option of keeping our greatest conflicts from becoming more bloody. We don't live in a perfect world, but in a broken and fallen world. Therefore, the role of peacemakers is crucial in keeping our inevitable human confrontations from killing more and more of us. War is not merely an activity. It is a system supported by economic and political assumptions and by structures that drive us toward conflict, which is then resolved by chosen methods of violence. The history of those systems and assumptions is deeply embedded in the present conflicts we are now confronting. And it is those assumptions and those institutions that we must begin to question. And those who do that will be called the children of God. music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews. Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners. Faith in action for social justice. Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres. To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net. That's book.sojo.net.
S-O-J-O dot net. And if you like what you heard today, please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review. That makes all the difference. Thanks for listening. God bless you.